I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. You'll need a Bible to follow along. The guys have some, so they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those Bibles to you. It's our gift to you. Keep that. Read it. Bring it back with you each week because we look at God's Word together each Lord's Day. Jonah chapter 3. I should have mentioned during the announcements that one of the other things that kicks off in the fall is our Community Institute. That's our midweek program. We started this past Wednesday. You see in the program the classes that we have for adults. We have three of them for you to choose from. And then we have our Pioneer Club for Kids and our teen program. All of that at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. So you need to register for one of the adult classes. I would encourage you to do that. You just missed the introductory sessions. So now's a good time to jump in. Jonah 3. Narrative is the most common single type of writing in the Bible. So, often what we read in the Bible is the story, that is the narration of God's work in the lives of other people. But if we keep the story with those people and we never apply it to ourselves, then we miss the point for which God gave those stories. That's what sometimes happens when we hear sermons about God's dealings with others. We get their story, but we never connect it to ours. The late professor of preaching, Dr. Haddon Robinson, who literally wrote the book on preaching called Biblical Preaching, said that when that happens, people hear sermons on narrative passages like, for example, Genesis chapter 12. And when you ask them after what they got out of it, they say something like, boy, Abraham really should not have gone to Egypt. (laughs) And so they've understood Abraham's story, but they've not seen themselves in it. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at God's dealings with Jonah in the 8th century B.C. But the truth is, we are to see ourselves in Jonah in 2019. It's unfortunate that the story is known as Jonah in the whale, since the great fish makes an appearance at the end of chapter 1 and really has just a bit part in the story of a man who had many spiritual privileges in his upbringing and in his training, and yet when God told him to do something he didn't like, namely preach to a people that he despised, then Jonah disobeyed and he went in the opposite direction. But of course, if we're honest and we think about it, that's not just Jonah, is it? I'd guess that you've had times That you know what God says in His Word that you're to do, but you just don't want to, and so you don't. You find other things to occupy the time that God has given you, things that you do want to do. I can certainly relate to that. In fact, the only reason any of us ever disobeys God is because what He wants conflicts with what we want. But though Jonah runs... We've seen in this book, God pursues, thanks be to God, and I can relate to that also. So God, in his mercy, gives Jonah a second chance, as he has given me a second chance, and a third chance, and a hundredth chance. So that Jonah ends up where he was originally supposed to go, but apparently half-heartedly. That is, Jonah repents, but only partly. Under God's guidance, Jonah does what he's supposed to do, namely preach to the hated people of Nineveh. 
And God graciously grants them repentance, as we see at the end of chapter 3. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But notice how Jonah feels about all of this as chapter 4 begins, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. From this, it's clear that although Jonah obeyed outwardly, inwardly his heart was not in it. Some have pointed out that even the preaching that Jonah did in Nineveh in chapter 3 was really going through the motions. As Jonah simply says in chapter 3 and verse 4 to the Ninevites, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, as we pointed out a few weeks ago in that passage, he may well have said more than what's recorded, but we know he didn't like what he was doing because now in chapter 4, he makes clear why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. And that we find in verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He's saying to God, well, now you've done it. (laughs) I knew this was what would happen. I knew you would go and do this. It's just like you to send a preacher and then you move on the hearts of the hearers and they get saved. That's just the way you are. You always do this kind of thing because that's the kind of God you are. But it's not the kind of God I want. Now, he didn't say those last words. You're not the kind of God I want you to be. But that's certainly what he implied. And that's why in verse 3, he says to the Lord, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'd rather die then see people like this experience your mercy. Now, we would never have that kind of disdain for people made in God's image, right? What about gays? What about abortionists? What about immigrants or Muslims? What about Democrats (laughs) or Republicans? In Jonah's prejudices and his sort of repentance, the truth is we see ourselves if we're willing to look. Now, we have an outline inserted in your program as we do each week to help you follow along. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to get that. And in it, I say that Jonah is a mirror that shows us. And then we have three things that we're going to fill in together. Let's bow and ask God to help us as we do. Father, we thank you that we are here. We're here by your permission. And we're here by your divine appointment. To be under the truth of your word, to submit ourselves to it, because in doing so, we submit ourselves to you. Lord, we desire to learn then 
about you, about ourselves, so that we can align our character with yours. So that we can go this week and bring glory to you, that is, display your character to those that you assign to our spheres of influence this week better than we did last. Help us to be able to do that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say in that outline that Jonah is a mirror that shows us that we are complex. And this complexity is seen in at least a couple ways. One is in the way we often only partially repent of our sin. We can be grateful to God for rescuing us from the consequences of our sin, but then we don't really change as we've committed. So think to yourself, have you ever had a close call in which God got your attention, you make commitments to God, and soon after the crisis is over, you drift back to your old ways? That's because repentance has to go much deeper than personal awareness of sin and our desire to be relieved of the problems that it's caused. If an airplane is going down, everyone on it will ask God to save them. But then if the plane pulls out of its tailspin and tragedy is averted and all survive, then everyone on board who cried out goes back to their old ways. So biblical counselor David Paulison, the late David Paulison, who passed away just a few months ago, wrote a classic article called The Ambiguously Cured Soul. And he said this, individually in each saint... The cravings and works of indwelling sin grapple against the Holy Spirit's desires and fruit. It's no surprise, then, that in life stories, you often notice competing voices jostling for the final say. Competing life trajectories wrestle for the controls. A transcription of what takes place in a person's soul reads like a courtroom drama where different witnesses tell contradictory stories about what happened. These are givens of our struggle on the long walk from regeneration to glorification. It means, friends, this, that every Christian is good in some ways, but bad in others. And growth occurs when we identify and deal with the ways we're not, especially in our desires and attitudes. We tend to focus on the ways in which we're good, What I'm telling you is growth occurs when we focus on the ways that we're not. Especially our desires and our attitudes. The 19th century Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said this, The seeds of all sins are in my heart. And the danger is that I do not see them. And it's a singular grace of God to expose them. So that they can then be changed. Our complexity includes our capacity for partial, ambiguous repentance. And this is true because of our human and sin natures. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a classic for good reason. (laughs) But also because of the new person the Bible says we are when we come to Christ. And that new person, the Bible teaches, still has the vestiges of indwelling sin with which we battle. And this is played out in a second way in which we see our complexity. Namely, in the difference between our confessional beliefs and our functional beliefs. Now, I'm indebted to Rick Thomas, who was with us last weekend, and who has written as as yet unpublished book 
on Jonah, of which I have an advanced copy, (laughs) and from which I'll be quoting extensively. There's your and my confessional beliefs, and there's our functional beliefs. Jonah's confession, that is what he knew to be right, and his functional beliefs, how he lived out his life, they were at odds. And that same tension is real for all of us. Our beliefs and our practices do not always line up. Functional beliefs are the ideas that are ingrained in you that guide your perception. They're the primary influences on your behavior. Your practical beliefs, those functional beliefs are who you are. These beliefs are the ones that put you in a gap that I'll talk about in just a bit. They're different from your confessional or core beliefs. Your core beliefs are the things you've learned about God from Scripture. These beliefs are the perfect and pure truth. And so, for example, in our confessional beliefs, we might say that we know that anything that we receive from God that's better than hell is more than we deserve because of our sin against Him. But in His grace, He provides those better things. That's a true statement. And we might say that we believe it. Jonah would have said he believed it. And in effect, he did say that from the belly of the fish back in chapter 2. But at the same time, we can believe we're, we're more deserving of God's grace than other people are. Now think about the contradiction there. It's a contradiction between our confessional beliefs and our functional, practical beliefs. And we all live somewhere in the gap between the two that we know to be true. Our confessional beliefs and what we regularly live out are functional beliefs. And this is a personal hypocrisy that applies to to all of us. And because it applies to all of us, it's why it's wrong to judge another person uncharitably when they fail. It's the reminder of our own gap between what we say we believe and how we actually practice that should restrain us from being judgmental. How could you or I judge others when we too are living in that gap? So the question should never be, is there a gap between what you believe and what you do? Because there is. Rather, it would be more helpful for gap dwellers like us to ask questions like this. How big is the gap? What am I doing about my gap? Am I seeking to close that gap or is my gap widening? How often do I talk to God about my gap? How am I soliciting the help of friends, Christian friends, to help me with my gap? The real deal for us is whether we're running to God or running away from God. So one pastor said it this way, sin is running away from God and grace is God's effort to pursue and intercept self-destructive behavior. God knows that we live somewhere in the gap. And so thanks be to God, he gives grace in the gap. Grace is his empowering favor appropriated for gap dwellers like us. But each of us has to determine whether we're going to apply God's unmerited favor to close the distance between the person we are and the person he is. Now hear this. 
The grace that God provides you in the gap between what you believe on one level, but what controls your behavior on the other. The grace that God gives to reduce that is the very circumstance he's given you, but you're chafing against. Think about what you don't like about your life right now. What would you like to be different? The Bible teaches that the very thing that God has given to reveal the gap between what you say you believe and what you really believe are those things that Scripture calls trials. Difficult circumstances. And so the Bible says famously, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is working all things, but what is that purpose for which he is working all of those things? The next verse gives the answer. For, because, because those God foreknew he also predestined to this, to be conformed to the image of his son. Every single piece of what's going on in your life is sovereignly ordained by God in order to achieve that. Reduce the gap between what we say we believe and what we actually practice. It's a gradual reducing of that gap between what we claim and how we live. And so the story of Jonah is a mirror. And it shows us that we, like he, are complex. But also, secondly, that we are perverse. (laughs) Aren't you glad you came to church? To be told what a pervert you are. But I say perverse in the sense that we take what's designed to cause us to worship God and we use it for our own ends. That is, we pervert God's purposes. And we see this in Jonah. In the midst of Jonah's sulking and his anger, God still shows his kindness to him. So verse number five of chapter four. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Now here is this still ambiguously disobedient servant of God. He's obeyed in that he preached the message. But he's not happy about what happened. And so he's angry and he's he's sulking. And yet God is reaching out in his grace yet again to Jonah. A grace that's designed to elicit praise to God and have Jonah see the disparity in what he claims to believe in his practice of it. He's already said in verse 2, has Jonah, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And now God is showing that again directly in the life of Jonah. By providing this comfort to him, even in the midst of his sinful attitude. But instead of using what God has given for the person he gave it, for the purpose for which God gave it, Jonah uses it for his own purpose, namely to stew in his self-righteous anger and watch. It tells us then in verse 5, 
He waited to see what would happen to the city. And so he continues to sit there and watch, hoping that God will relent again and actually destroy the Ninevites. Because Jonah perverted God's grace, God removed it. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah is angry over his lost plant, but notice the perversity of this. He does not care about the people of Nineveh. And that's what God's trying to show him. He's trying to show you, Jonah, how perverse Jonah is living in the gap between what he claims and how he behaves, and he's refusing to close that gap. And this occurs for all of us, like for Jonah, when we're not getting our way. So how about you? When we find ourselves at the intersection of God's story and our story, there's a strong pull to yield our to, to our own desires rather than to God's. That's what Jonah's doing. But we shouldn't fuss with Jonah too much here. We've all done this many times where we live out the difference between our professed and practiced beliefs. If we're angry with our spouse or someone else, for instance, we feel the pressure Jonah felt. Will I trust and follow God by living out the pure word of the Lord? Or will I allow my functional beliefs, which are telling me to do things my way, will I allow them to rule the day? We often, like Jonah, choose our desires over God's. And at that moment, it doesn't matter to us what our confessional beliefs are because we're not yielding to the word that we confess. Truth does not matter if you're not going to live by that truth. If functional beliefs are going to win out, now it sounds very harsh, but stay with me. If functional beliefs are going to win out, then we are no better off than an atheist because we are acting out of functional atheism. Practical atheism. God doesn't matter. What God says doesn't matter. Think about situations where your functional beliefs have overpowered the word of God that you confess. I know lying's wrong, but if in a place where I may look bad, I may choose to lie rather than speak the truth. I know I should love my wife the way Christ loved the church, but when she displeases me, I want to punish her through my anger. I know I should forgive others as Christ has forgiven me, but when someone hurts me, I want to make them pay for what they did. I know that God looks on the heart and is not impressed with this jar of clay. But I want to dress to impress and say things to impress and do things to impress. I know looking twice at a woman is lust, but I enjoy the sleazy satisfaction of looking at women. I know I should obey my parents, but they are not perfect. And there are times when I judge them for this, which motivates me to disobey them. And on and on the list can go. So friends, what is your disparity? Where is your gap? The truth is, there is a gap in all of our lives, and some things motivate us to raise the functional flag of our lives while lowering the confessional one that we know to be true. 
So self-protection and self-preservation and self-promotion. They're all three hidden idolatries that will feed and fuel our functional beliefs. Most of the time, our practical beliefs will run under the radar of our known and perceived behavior. You see, because part of what it means to live in the gap is to put out for everybody else a highly edited version of who you are. The one that people see today, I mean, especially today, on Sunday, is not who we really are. None of us are dumb enough to live according to our full functional beliefs in the raw. We keep those things hidden. The problem with hiding those functional beliefs from others is that you can start to believe your own self-publicity, your self-promoting efforts to present yourself as better than you are. That's called self-deception. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, then you should want your functional beliefs to be exposed because it's only when you know what they are that you begin to work on changing them. You know you cannot live a lie. That's insanity. Insanity is fully ensconced paranormal thinking. You don't want to go there. Para means alongside or outside of something. Paranormal thinking is beside normal thinking or outside of normal thinking. Normal thinking is biblical thinking. Sanity is living as close to biblical thought as you can get. Choosing to continuously live outside the clear and normative teaching of the Word of God will eventually lock you into biblical insanity and your conscience will soon follow those functional beliefs by hardening you in that gap. You don't want to do that. It should scare you and me. You have the Word of God. You have the Spirit of God. Two means of grace given to you to help you change your functional beliefs until they're submitted and guided by those confessional beliefs. If there's a disconnect between your functional beliefs and your confessional ones, then we have to discern, decipher, and determine to break the disconnect that keeps us stuck in that gap. Let me just say this as we then move on. My friends, as you think about that, and you think about the fact that, you know what, I am a hypocrite. All of us are in that sense. As you think about that, one response could be, I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to stop doing Bible study because I know I have this gap. And I know that to that extent I'm a hypocrite. That's the worst thing you could do. (laughs) Run toward the gap. Run toward the hypocrisy rather than away from it. That's what God's inviting you to do. That's why God's telling us that it exists, not for us to run from it, but to run to it and the grace he provides to gradually overcome it. Jonah is a mirror that shows our complexity, our perversion. And I also say in your outline that we're arrogant. This arrogance is seen in three ways. One, we see others as undeserving. So think about an annoying person in your life. (laughs) Don't point. Don't do any of that. Just just asking you to think about it. This is somebody who gets under your skin. What are your thoughts about them? How do you associate with them? Would you rather avoid them or pursue them? 
Your answer will test your understanding of and faithfulness to the gospel, the redemptive work of Jesus. Because God is a relentless pursuer whose goal for us is beyond salvation. He wants us transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So perhaps you have a spouse who challenges every fiber of your being when it comes to loving like Jesus. Maybe one of your children has disappointed you one too many times. You have weak resistance and your desire for redemptive parenting has waned. What about the church member who tempts you to sin just by looking at them? Or the extended family member? What about people or people groups in our culture like I mentioned earlier? You could probably clump all of your annoying people into one broad category. People who don't do things your way. Just think about that. All the annoying people in my life have one thing in common. They're not like me. The people in traffic, if everybody could be like me. How many people in your life agree with you, but you disagree with them? (laughs) It's very rare. Typically, the people who annoy us the most are the people who do things differently from us. Regardless of who they are or what they do, God calls on us to do the same thing. He wants us to partner with him to carry the gospel to them. And if they've responded to the gospel, then for us to display the gospel to them in an ongoing way. And so that's why Jesus said this. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. That is, don't just hang out with the people you like and people who are like you. You get something out of that. You get the satisfaction of being with people you like. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In our arrogance, we see some as undeserving and we see ourselves as deserving. So as I said earlier, we're all good and bad, but we tend to focus on the good. I'm telling you, you change by focusing on the attitudes and the thoughts that are bad so that they can be changed. But we like to focus on the good. All of us do. And so that great theologian, Paul Simon, (laughs) has a song, Loves Me Like a Rock. Sorry, that's going to be an earworm. You're going to be doing that. Those of you who are old enough to remember it. But in it, he, he talks about when I was a little boy and the devil would call my name and he'd say, now, who, who do who do you think you're fooling? And then he talks about being the president someday. And the press is saying to him, who do you think you're fooling? Because people are trying to get at who you really are. The gap in your life. Who do you think you're fooling? But he would then immediately go as the refrain in the song goes, but my mama loves me. She loves me. She gets on her knees and hugs me. She loves me like a rock. See, I'm good. Let's keep focusing on how good I am. We see this idea that we see ourselves as deserving in the story of the prodigal son. The truth is Jonah is the Old Testament version of one of the characters in the story of the prodigal son. Pastor Tim Keller gives a helpful summary of the story 
to make this point. The story of the prodigal son is not a story about just one son. But it's about a man who had two sons, an older brother and a younger brother. And they're both important for the story. And it starts, as you know, with the younger son rejecting the father and taking his inheritance, going to a far country. While he's there, he gets involved in wild living. He blows all that he had received until he's impoverished. Meanwhile, the older son stays home and he obeys his father. Now, each of these sons represents two ways to live. The first one, the one who went away and lived a wild life, represents our traditional understanding of sin. Cavorting with prostitutes, spending your money until you're in poverty, licentious living. We look at that and we say, yep, that's what sin is. That's the irreligious life. I make my own rules. But as you look at that story, you see that the older obedient son is just as alienated from the father as his younger brother. You see it by his rejection, reaction, I should say, when his brother comes home. At some point, the young man realizes his mistake. He comes back to his home. He asks his father to forgive him. The father not only forgives him, he throws a feast to celebrate the occasion. He kills the fatted calf for food. So I always say this when I read that. You've heard me say this. A Sunday school teacher was teaching this story to some kids in Sunday school and about the older son being angry and they killed the fatted calf. And the teacher reviewed the story and said, now who was angry when the younger son came home? And the little boy said, the fatted calf? (laughs) He's wearing an eat more chicken uh, thing. But he kills the fatted calf. He places a rich robe on him. He has his servants put a ring on his finger. But remember this. The younger sons used his portion of his inheritance from his father. Now get this. So everything that's now being spent on him would have gone to the older brother. And the Bible says the older brother is furious. So much so he refuses to go into the party that his father's throwing. And this we see that The two brothers, who appear to be quite different, are really exactly alike in their hearts. Both of them wanted their father's things, but not their father. And why won't that older brother participate in the party? He tells us. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, but he said to his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The father embraced his prodigal son and gave him an expensive robe and ring, an expensive party, but it all belonged to the older brother. It was all part of his inheritance. He's angry about it. It means the the father could bring that younger son home. But it's not free. It's free to the younger brother, but at the expense of the older brother. Now, a good older brother would have agreed with his father and rejoiced, and he would have said readily, yes, I'll bring the fatted calf, and I'll put my ring and my robe on him, sacrifice a part of what is mine, so that he can be brought home. But sadly, it turns out that this good, religious, moral older brother was not so good after all. That younger brother really did not have a good older brother. But the great news is we do in Jesus. Because Jesus was stripped naked, so we could receive the Father's robe of righteousness. Jesus Christ on the cross was cast out, so we could be brought into God's family by grace. Jesus on the cross paid the penalty of our sins, so we don't have to, so we could be brought home. So which one of those are you? The older brother or the younger brother? The Father invites all to the feast. And so the Bible tells us, 
Romans 14 about this prideful, I'm deserving attitude that creeps within all of us. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Our arrogance causes us to see people as undeserving, ourselves as deserving. And then lastly, we see in all of this God as unwise. Jonah had hatred in his heart toward the people God was pursuing to redeem, but it gets worse. Jonah was criticizing God for being God. He's saying, in effect, given what you know about these people, then why be merciful to them? And we see that same attitude in the older brother of the prodigal. John MacArthur says this, Imagine for a moment that you are one of the Pharisees, a legalist, and you're listening as Jesus tells that prodigal son's story. In your assessment, practically everything the characters in the story have done up to this point has been permeated with shame. The prodigal son's escapades were scandalous. The father's rush to forgive was appalling. A huge banquet where all the villagers become participants in the merrymaking capped it all off with yet another disgraceful event, a veritable celebration of shame. All along the way, you've been producing gasps, exclamations, and gestures in all the places where you felt you needed to make your disapproval known. When the son demanded demanded his inheritance, you frowned deeply and shook your head. When the father gave him what he asked for, you muttered in protest. When the boy quickly squandered all his wealth, you exclaimed about the shame of it all. When he took a job tending pigs, you gasped in horror and wrung your hands, and so on it goes. Certain aspects of the story have been mystifying to you, such as the younger son's repentance and his decision to come home. But then suddenly you were outraged again because of the father's unexpected clemency. Finally, the elaborate feast just left you shaking your head. To your way of thinking, the Father's determination to celebrate is in some ways the most troubling occurrence so far. It's something you could not possibly have foreseen. You do not like the direction the story is headed at the moment. Nevertheless, it's drawn you in because its major themes are the very things you care about most, honor and shame. Earning approval versus deserving wrath. Maintaining a proper appearance is contrasted with openly sinning and being rewarded for doing well as opposed to being scorned for doing wrong. You followed the story with the expectation that those who have acted so shamelessly will somehow in the end reap the appropriate consequences. In short, you're waiting for one of the characters to do something you perceive as right and honorable. And the older brother is the last best hope. Here comes someone who's saying what any Pharisee can identify with. You think to yourself, surely at last, this guy will set the story straight. But the father in that story is a symbol of the father in our story. And we may view him as the Pharisees do, as unwise in what he does. But this is the kind of God he is. Thanks be to God for us and for those God will use us in the lives of. So here's your take-home truth. Knowing our own heart should elicit gratitude in us for God's heart. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for gathering us. And we thank you for this time to look into the pages of your word. And to, Lord, there be convicted by the story of your ambiguously cured servant, Jonah. 
But Lord, I confess that I am like Jonah. And I have within me the seeds of every sin. And the real danger is that, as Robert Murray McShane said, I do not know what they are. And so, Father, it's the grace of yours to your people that in our circumstances in which you place us, you expose those recesses of our hearts that need to be changed. So help us to be people who embrace that so that we can reduce the gap day by day between what we say we believe and how we functionally live. And as a result of that, conform us, we pray, to the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.